No, where the fuck is the shortbread today, Gordon? In Scotland. It's Friday, May 18th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and OPEF expert, and with me today are Gordon Derrick, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Dutch News' Crime Correspondent, and Molly Krell, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and uh, Dutch American Cradle. Yes. What's that all about? So on my way back from yoga on Monday, I got the whole way home to discover that, uh, so I'm like, you know, my key is on a, like a ring and I put them into the ring lock on my bike. And at some point the keychain had broken. So I biked the whole way back to my yoga class to discover that I just not, still not be able to find my keys. So on the way returning home, very annoyed because I've now locked out of my house, I spot on the ground like a little screw. And I'm like, that suspiciously looks like the little screw from my keychain. And so sure enough, what had happened was, is that the keys had broken. And then like each individual key and my like Albert Hein bonus card and whatever had like fallen off piece by piece right along the way. So I was very excited about this because now I have now, you know, gotten back like and one you could of, play a game. Right. Yeah. <laughs> one of my the locks were one of my doors and like my office key and whatever. The house key was still missing, and I was basically like sort of following the breadcrumbs so closely that I came to the intersection and looked up to discover that in the time since I had biked to this intersection last, they had like brought in an asphalt like shredder to like <laughs> to to repave the street. <laughs> so like the rest of my keys were were underneath had been destroyed by this asphalt shredder. So I was like sort of looking around, maybe hoping that I was going to get lucky, at which point I started getting yelled at by a bunch of the construction guys who were like, you can't go this way. And I was like, no shit, the asphalt is just like a pile of lava. And then one of the guys came over and said, are you looking for keys? And I said, yes. And he said, yeah, we found them and put them over there. So they had found them and I did ultimately get my keys back. Oh, this is a great story. It was a great story. So you did get your keys back. That's all I have for you this week. (laughs) (laughs) That was a Dutch name podcast. So at least you got your keys back because I also lost some keys this week. um, Yeah. I took the key. It was the school holiday, so I went to the beach with the boys, um, and we went up on the bikes. And uh, we discovered when we got back to the bikes that the keys had uh, somehow disappeared in the sand on the way back. So then we had to actually pick up. Somehow, luckily, I managed to hold onto my own bike key, but I no longer had keys for the kids' bikes. So we actually then had to pick them up on one wheel and wheel them back from the dunes all the way home. Wow! While people looking on, thinking this is the worst bunch of bike thieves <laughs> ever. <laughs> This person has like <laughs> hired some child slave yeah, labor exactly, to steal yeah. kids' bikes. Yeah, this is, this is some terrible immigrant crime family nicking bikes. <laughs> but this this led to a situation in which you were forced to try to saw through a bike lock in it your did. swimming trunks. Is that <laughs> not correct? Gordon? Yeah, there was no bike lock in my swimming trunks. By the way, I want to make that clear. But uh, I was yeah, in, it was, I was very in a, unclear in your face. <laughs> I, was, I was in the kitchen in my swimming trunk because I thought the swimming trunks are the easiest thing to get oil off. Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah. yeah, so it was a bit of logical thinking there. Fair enough. So I spent I spent Sunday morning literally with a hacksaw just trying to hack through this bike lock so that I didn't have to pay a shop to do it for me. And did, were you um, successful? I was end? eventually successful, yes, but it's a hell of a thing to get. These bike yeah. locks, you know, they're, they're, they're not meant to be taken off of the No, sword, of course not. That's, that's the literal point of the bike lock. You can do it, but it takes about three hours. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's a big... Uh, yeah. But that's not the only thing you've been up to this week because you've also been uh, doing some crime reporting, huh? Uh, yeah, well, it's, um, this... Uh, t- uh, 
Uh, so, so t today, which is yeah, uh, Friday, um, is uh, the next stage of the uh, Willem Hollander trial, which will be all over the papers. And I think a lot of people will think, uh, why is there so much um, attention for this kind of gangster and a guy who's accused of uh, killing or ordering the killings of about six people? So I wrote this. I went to court uh, last time. Um, uh, it was the, the, the trial was on, um, and uh, yeah, so I've spoke to a few people who queued outside the court because people are queuing to get into the courtroom and I'll be there again this morning and they from were there about, from, from, five from like sort of five well yeah. I, from five more, so I turned up about eight o'clock and there, but there was a small queue of people it wasn't so interesting that day because um, the people the person everyone really wants to see is uh, Willem Holliday's sister Astrid yeah. she wasn't giving evidence that day but still she's the a, key witness she's kind of the key witness because she's made all these recordings of him talking about um, apparently talking about uh, knocking people off or you know get, getting uh, what does uh, he like to say what's his like euphemism for this well he says all kinds of things yeah he talks about it in also very opaque language. He never says it directly, but he says, uh, "You know what I'm going to do, or they're going to go and lie down." Yeah, they're going to go thing. and lie down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're going to have a lie down. Yeah, yeah. But he sort of says it, you know, a month before they get they get and shot, they and then they die. So yeah. it's uh, either they do lie down. Spoon. I mean, he they is, do. He's he is accurate. In yeah, this. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so yeah, but we should do a discussion on Willem Holland. Willem Holland. I think when like, it's all wrapped up, we yeah, probably should. Yeah, yeah. And like but, the whole thing because yeah. I think it's an interesting topic. I'm kind of fascinated just by the whole Holiday Circus around. It's about 35 years, and you know, people have written books about it. You know, go into a any lot book. of books. Yeah, There's exactly. so you go into any books. bookshop now, you'll find at least three Holiday. I think you know the at least three Holiday titles in the kind of top, yeah, you know, the top ten. Yeah. There just seems to be some insatiable appetite. But this, the I mean, the story is, I and mean, we'll link to your um, article about it, which is which is very entertaining, but but quite long and like really. It covers all of this extensive backstory. Of course, I didn't know all these things that like the French government tried to like sneakily fly him into a Dutch Caribbean island so they could like extradite him. There's this weird, weird, absurd like tweak of French law where they couldn't extradite people for kidnapping. Like there's everything very old else extradition treaty. Yeah. Didn't, yeah, didn't cover bit, yeah. kidnapping. Yeah. Like it's just this totally insane it's an story. Amazing story. And yeah. the Netherlands has been obsessed with him for the past 35 years and everybody knows his name. Everybody knows how he looks like. Yeah, but it's hard to keep track of, 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 of him and what he's yeah. been to because there's just so much. And whenever someone asks me or uh, I try to explain to you this once, Molly, yeah. the, uh, you know, the whole backstory, but there's just so much that... You, yeah. There was like All a right, whiteboard and like some, you know, like drawings and stuff involved, yeah. and I still don't yeah. totally. Uh, the, the very, very short version for anyone who's, who's never you know, what, still wondering what this is all about is that you start off with the Heineken kidnapping. So, yeah. 35 years ago, Willem Holliday and his mates kidnapped the CEO of Heineken. So, yeah. it's huge big news at the time, but it's kind of, it, it's just right, it's just carried on basically, and there's been all kinds of yeah, sort of uh, macabre twists and yeah. uh, colorful uh, aspects to the story. And there's been a lot of yeah. ophef about it, which uh, brings me to uh, Paul's job title for this week, which is ophef expert. Yes, um, we've been uh, away for the past two weeks, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, there was just so much, so much opeth. Opeth. The opeth's just grown like a knotweed. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. The meantime, and yeah. Uh, also a number of very weird stories that we uh, really want to talk about uh, on the podcast. So we decided to skip the discussion and just do a opeth special yeah. Yeah. for this yeah. uh, this week's episode. So it's all kinds of good uh, good yeah. weird random lots of animal stories there's iguanas yeah, yeah. yeah. lots of just stories about people being just sort of irrationally angry about yeah. things as well. This week we'll update you on Mark Rutte's new delivery job, the new Rembrandt painting and why Amsterdam won't be seeing many new tourists. In our discussion we talk about the weird news stories and the ophefs that happened the past two weeks. Prime Minister Mark Rutte went to the Dutch Caribbean islands of St. Maarten, Saba and St. Eustatius last week. The islands, which are part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, were struck by Hurricane Irma last September. On St. Maarten, more than 90% of the buildings were damaged in that storm. 
Reconstruction is still underway, but the Prime Minister said there is still a lot to be done. He also expressed his concern about the next hurricane season, which is about to start. Because not all constructions will be finished in time, it's now a priority there will be sufficient shelter capacity, Rutter said. So Rutter went to the islands, he obviously flew on his official government jet, and then he came back and he had some guests with him, right? Yes, that's yeah. true. Uh, Rutter brought along with him in, in the government plane four Antillian iguanas. These animals are endangered and Blydorp Zoo in Rotterdam is trying to save the species with a breeding program. Uh, but the zoo couldn't find an airline that was uh, willing to transport the animals to the Netherlands. So when they heard Rutte was, was going there, they asked for his help and he said yes. Uh, so the zoo said that the iguanas crates were put in a space that's usually reserved for uh, meetings and conference calls. So uh, the prime minister uh, wasn't able to, to have a conference call or a meeting on his way back uh, to the Netherlands. So do we know if any sort of like yeah. Angela Merkel felt Owned up and he had to say like sorry uh, sorry, sorry Angie yeah. I can't I can't chat with no. you my, I'm babysitting, uh, I'm babysitting iguanas, iguanas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this probably happened yeah. yeah I'm not sure I hope it did I hope it Me did too, yeah, yeah. yeah. we will have to wait for his memoirs yeah. I guess yeah. the iguanas are under threat in Saint Martha from traffic cats dogs but also the barbecue because apparently the the meat of the iguanas is is very tasteful uh, and the Latin name is even iguana delicatissima Paul also there was some uh, some some opeffiness about what Rutte had to say about Donald Trump. Right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Rutte went to uh, Bulgaria after uh, he came back from the Caribbean. So there was a European Union summit there. And um, Rutte said that uh, President Donald Trump stepped out of the Iran nuclear deal in a yeah, lompe manier. I'm not sure what the English translation of yeah. that is, but it's yeah. sort clumsy of or clumsy, stupid, stupid, stupid something yeah. like that. Yeah. There's not, no, not a literal uh, translation yeah. for that. But he added that the relationship between the United States and the European Union is no longer as good as it was, and uh, that the US is not taking into account the interest of its allies. Um, but he's basically echoing the words of, uh, of the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, because uh, he said that uh, a similar thing uh, yeah, uh, last week as well. The family of a Syrian man who stabbed three people in The Hague have accused the psychiatric institution, where he was briefly detained earlier this year, of failing to look after him. The 31-year-old, known as Malik F., was shot by police on May the 5th after he targeted his victims in the street, apparently at random. His brother said he repeatedly warned Parnassia, which is the organisation that runs the institution, that F. was unstable and dangerous since he was taken into care in January. In February, police were called to his apartment in the city centre after he threw his furniture and possessions out of a second-floor window. A lawyer for the family has said Parnassia should be held responsible for the injuries suffered by F and his victims because the institution was negligent and is talking of going to court. Police also said they'd received an anonymous tip-off in March that F was planning a terrorist attack, but a search of his house had turned up no evidence to substantiate it. But there's been a debate in uh, the Hague Council um, during the, uh, on, th- on Thursday evening where the mayor's come under some criticism for not revealing this tip-off. Um, and F himself has given conflicting accounts to police of why he carried out the stabbings. So uh, did the authority... So did the authorities uh, rule out terrorism? I think effectively, yes, because, I mean, the big clue is that IS haven't claimed responsibility for the attack and they claim responsibility for just about anything. The kind of strange thing here is, is that, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of coverage when it happened and it happened, it ha- happened to be on uh, Liberation Day as well, May the 5th. So it's quite a, um, a significant date. Uh, so there's a lot of coverage questioning whether or not it was a terrorist attack. And yet no, nobody really was asking what seemed to be the more kind of, you know, the immediate question of why a guy who'd been taken into protective custody in February was now out on the street 
streets in May with a knife when there were all kinds of indications from his family and people around him that uh, you know, the, he, he shouldn't be left alone. So to clarify, because I got a question, I was, somebody was asking me about this yesterday, if I knew. Uh, one, he, the the perpetrator himself, was shot but not killed by police, right? Yes. And so, and how are the victims doing? Yeah, the victims uh, were a they were almost being forgotten in this. So were a 21-year-old man from Zutemir and two people who live in The Hague, aged 41 and 35. Uh, they're being treated in hospital for their wounds. Uh, their lives are out of danger, but the, um, uh, the Hague's mayor, Paulina Klicker, has said it'll take some time for them to recover. In a joint paper published this week by the country's universities, they called for a cap on the number of courses given in English. The aim is to ensure that there is space at Dutch universities for Dutch students as the number of international students has grown. Currently, international students make up 17% of the total student population, but the university's association, VNSU, expects this proportion to rise to about 20% in the near future. Around 30% of university staff and 50% of postgraduates are internationals. The paper also said that the matriculation and course fees for students from outside the European Union should be raised, that universities should be more selective in deciding whether to give classes in English, to improve Dutch and English language courses for students, and to do more to integrate international students into the system and student life. So basically universities want to have fewer international students. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, but that, that's going to raise uh, issues with the, with the funding because they need international students to come and pay course fees yeah, to so keep them running. One, so one thing with this is, is that, of course, while on a maybe a higher level, the universities want fewer international students on a on a practical level. If you're from outside the EU, you pay a whole lot more to the to the university system for for tuition. But also, you start running into this problem, um, wherein that, as we mentioned, fifty percent of postgraduates, right, are not Dutch speaking, and thirty percent of staff. So if you if you have a faculty where a number of your if you have hired a bunch of professors who don't speak Dutch, then it's very hard for them to give lectures to students in Dutch, thus forcing the situation to be where Dutch students are taking courses in English. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that the uni- the Dutch system does not produce enough PhDs in a lot of fields to fill all of the necessary like professorship spots um, in a lot of these universities. So they've taken to importing them. But of course, no one else speaks Dutch besides mm. the Dutch for the obvious reason that the Dutch language is terrible and awful. <laughs> and yeah, you run into this problem very, very quickly. Um, and also there's some discussion about how like a lot of technical fields, of course, all of your papers are published in English and the textbooks are all in English and these sorts of things. So mm. it's not just a problem that the Netherlands is having. I mean, there's like a lot of other countries in uh, Germany and Sweden and Italy have run into some real problems where, you know, in some fields, they, they simply do not produce enough people who are from those countries to teach at the universities. And thus they have taken to recruiting foreign staff. But then they run into the fact that those foreign staff can't teach in the local language. And instead, you know, the, the language of science has become English. And so, yeah, it's a real question, I think, what they're going to do in the long term. And that's not the only education news, right, this week? No. uh, School leaving exams have started in the country. So over 200,000 secondary school pupils in the Netherlands started their three weeks of exams on Monday. Be on the lookout for a backpack being hung from a flagpole on your neighbor's house. And that is a sign that the student who lives there has passed their exams. Yeah. uh, Usually a backpack with a a flag hanging off the end of it or something. Yeah, something like that. So. And uh, even uh, schools hand out uh, their own flags because yeah. that's yeah. also a sort of advertisement for that school. For the school. Oh, for the rather school. than that's using, the, using yeah. the Dutch flag. Usually, find, quite often you find things students don't hang out their own rucksack, but they're sort of the dad's old sort of leather rucksacks. They're yeah. much more attractive than the, you know, the modern rucksacks. Yeah. yeah. For the first time in 44 years, a new painting by the Dutch 17th century master Rembrandt van Rijn has been discovered. 
Dutch art historian and dealer Jan Six saw the portrait of a young man which was described as School of Rembrandt at a London auction and he immediately recognized it as a painting by the master himself. He bought the painting for 156,000 euro and after investigation by Rijksmuseum experts and 15 other conservators and art historians it was concluded that the portrait which dates from 1634 was in fact painted by Rembrandt. The painting is now on show at the Hermitage Museum in Amsterdam for the coming month. Jan Six is planning on selling the painting. I bet he is. So oh. yeah, I, mean, I, I would be if, <laughs> exactly really, if the I, first thing I do. Yeah. So how did he know it was a Rembrandt? Well, that's a funny story. Jan Six was reading the auction catalogue when he saw the painting, which was described as made by someone from the circle around Rembrandt. And when he saw the year the painting was made, 1634, he realized that Rembrandt had just arrived in Amsterdam that year, and it's not possible that he had a circle around him, meaning that it could only be Rembrandt who painted the portrait. Uh, and uh, the guy on the painting was also wearing a collar, and that collar was specifically in uh, fashionable in 1634, so yeah. he knew painted. So that dated it quite exactly. Yeah. yeah. Jan Six also discovered that the portrait was originally part of a much larger piece, uh, because the, in the bottom right corner you see a little table with a hint of someone else's sleeve, and the canvas of the painting is made out of two pieces, but the bottom piece is only four centimeters wide, so that means that there, uh, uh, originally there was a, a much larger uh, area uh, underneath it. Yeah, so perhaps it's kind of a full length portrait in because at the moment it's sort of cut softened around about the, just below the around about just below the waist yeah. It? yeah and it sounds like uh yeah it sounds like a waste to 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 cut a, a large painting in pieces especially if it's a rembrandt but that happened yeah back then well it, it, it happened fam very famously often. a section of the, the night watch was sliced off yeah yeah because it didn't fit in the town hall the yeah <laughs> in between the doors yeah, yeah. so <laughs> they cut off one third of the painting and yeah. that's uh, that's still missing but uh, the, this guy is called jan six yeah who discovered the painting and uh fun fact uh, he is a descendant of the Amsterdam mayor in the 17th century, who was also called Jan Six. And Jan Six, the 17th century guy, was painted by Rembrandt too. Huh. Yeah. And the yeah, and, uh, and that portrait of Jan Six hung in the house that the today's Jan Six grew up in. Yeah. So you kind of had quite good close look at you know, Rembrandt's uh, style and. Uh, and if you look methods. at the, the guy who was painted, his his um, his identity is not yet known, but Jan Six has a plan to discover uh, how to uh, how to find out yeah. who is uh, the guy who was painted because it's uh, uh, it is a marriage portrait. If you know take the the larger piece into account, it's probably a marriage portrait. So if you uh, go to the to the Amsterdam archives and you look for who married in 1634 and you know it's a it's a rich guy because because mm. of the color he's wearing you can uh, find his yeah. uh, his can narrow it down quite exactly yeah, yeah. wow that's yeah. a fun uh, sounds like a fun research project yeah yeah, yeah but he, and he's already published a book on this hasn't he because he spent a whole year researching the painting yeah he, and then taking he didn't just do it by his own eye he also took samples of the paint to and i think he consulted about uh, a large number of other experts to make absolutely definitively sure it was a rembrandt before he went public with it so he's planning mm. on making a lot of money selling the painting and Indeed. a lot of money selling the book yeah no that's, doubt. that's real fair say mentality right? <laughs> it really is yeah, yeah. exploit it to the max and there's a bit of up here i think around the uh, auction house christie's in london who sold the painting isn't yeah. it because uh, the the person who sold it well they put it in the catalogue with an estimate of 15 to twenty thousand pounds uh, Jan Six bought it for 137000 so the seller thought he'd done quite well. But, of course, it's now turned out it's worth about $3 million. Right, because it's an actual Rembrandt. Because <laughs> it's an actual Rembrandt, yes. Hey, well, the seller so, should have, like, asked somebody, hey, maybe... Well, no, the auction house like, is supposed to do that. Yeah. Now, that, yeah. That, that, that's part of their job as an auction house, to yeah. get a, to get the uh, best price for the uh, for the work. Well, they clearly it's didn't amazing. Google, like, when when did Rembrandt move to Amsterdam, <laughs> which I'm probably on his Wikipedia page, so they didn't do their due diligence there, I think.
In sports news, Tom Dumoulin looks well-placed to defend his Giro d'Italia title. After 12 of the 21 stages of the classic cycling race, Dumoulin is in second place overall, 47 seconds behind Britain's Simon Yates. Dumoulin became the first Dutchman ever to win the Tour of Italy last year, and as a time trial specialist, he'll be pinning his hopes on next Tuesday's individual Contre Le Monte stage. Gordon, is soccer season over yet? Uh, the regular season's over, but that means we're now into the end-of-season playoffs, which are also known as the maddest football competition ever devised. <laughs> okay, it's, it's the Na Competizi, and hold on to your hat, so I'm going to try and explain how it works. It's, it, it's hugely entertaining, it's very popular with the fans, and uh, it defies just about any explanation, attempt at explanation. But basically, there are eight clubs in the Na Competizi, and that is two clubs from the Eredivisie. One club goes down automatically, that was FC Twente this season. The two clubs who finished above them face up off against six teams from the Jupila League. However, four teams in the Jupiter League are ineligible because they're the youth teams of Ajax, PSV, FC Utrecht and AZ and they can't play in the same league as the senior sides. Four places go to the Periode Campionen and that's where each quarter of the season, the season divides up into four quarters and the team that gets the most points in each quarter gets a place in the now Competizi. Any remaining spots are then filled by the teams that finish immediately below Fortuna Sittard who were promoted even though they finished second because Ajax youth players won the league. So, for example, FC Dordrecht finished 13th out of 20 teams, but they still get the chance to be promoted, even though they had a pretty mediocre season. Still with me? No. 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 Okay. Also, this is the same way that they uh, that they assign rest satels, right? It's the yeah, same pretty much. formula. Same. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And also how they work out uh, how much income tax you pay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the team's then split into two separate mini knockout competitions of four. Each features one Eredivisie team and three challengers from the Upila, and the winning team from each pool plays in the top flight next season. So that means that possibly, when all when everything's said and done nobody moves and no teams get promoted or relegated <laughs> this season that's not going to happen because Roda Kese Kekrada have already been relegated they lost their semi-final to Almira City Almira are now playing their final against the Krasrupt Dutingham who beat Telstar 6-5 in aggregate and the first leg of the final was on Thursday night in Flevoland the uh, Krasrupt have the advantage because they scored a last minute penalty to get a one-all draw and the other team who are trying to stay in the top flight are Sparta Rotterdam and that means there was a trip to Drenthe on Thursday night for Dick Dick Lawyer! Dick Lawyer! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm more interested It always now. comes back to Dick Lawyer. I love yeah, Dick know. Lawyer. Yeah. Let's go. So Dick Advocat, football's favourite Dick, was looking decidedly <laughs> droopy last week when his team went 2-0 down to Dordrecht in the second leg of the semi-final, but they came roaring back up again in the second half to snatch a draw, and they went through to the final against FC Emmen. Now, Emmen have been in the playoffs 11 times in their history. They've never won promotion, and if they're going to do it this time, they'll have to do it in the Dick's Den, because the teams drew 0-0 in Emmen, and that means Sparta have the advantage for the second leg in Rotterdam on Sunday. Do you know the first name of the of the FC Emmen uh, manager? Uh, I've forgotten. But I, I do. It's not that hard. No, it's not, it's not Dick. It's it's it is Dick. It's Dick versus Dick. Dick, Dick versus Dick. Dick. Versus Dick. Yeah. Coalition negotiations for the city council in Amsterdam have turned to plans to restrict the number of tourists visiting the city every year. Proposals include an increase in tourist taxes, permits for tour guides, a ban on, quote, fun transport and tourist buses, moving cruise boat terminals, and more. According to the four-party coalition of the De Sessestig, the SP, Groen Links, and the PVDA, quote, the positive sides to tourism, the jobs, and income for the city are being overshadowed by the negative sides, end quote. Some 18 million tourists are predicted to visit the city this year, and residents have complained that it's turned into a sort of tourist theme park. Opposition to the moves is mostly coming from those in the tourism sector, unsurprisingly. Yeah. And uh, what exactly is fun transport? Uh, beer bikes and horse-drawn carriages. Ah. So the city council's answer is to 
band fun, basically. Basically, they're, they're, they're going to be really ban fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they've, this is not the first time that they've sort of tried to ban fun. Um, they, they, there have previously been moves by the outgoing Chemin uh, uh, the outgoing city council, to uh, ban tourist shops, which also is a bit of a vague definition. Mm. Um, it's, you know, if, if, if I buy my cheese at the shop, does it count as a tourist shop or uh, not? It depends on how much you pay for it. Right, you, I think. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think they also banned coffee shops in a circle yeah. uh, in a radius of 500 meters. Yeah, and schools. ice cream shops. But that, but that wasn't just in Amsterdam, was it? That no. was, uh, was that, I think that they was were policy. they were trying to do that in Amsterdam, but that yeah. basically meant that there couldn't be any, any coffee, coffee, shops, coffee shops everywhere. Well, no, I think Amsterdam. what happened is that there was a regulation that uh, you couldn't have coffee shops within a certain distance of a school. Uh, and there was one school in the middle of a circle of about 11 coffee shops. <laughs> so the coffee shops actually clubbed together and they bought the school building and yeah. the school moved oh. so that the coffee That's shops smart. could stay. Yeah, yeah. very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very very same mentality. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting, I think, for the residents of Amsterdam who have been long complaining about the number of tourists as to whether or not these make a big uh, big significant difference. Some of them seem a bit silly. They want to move the cruise boat, the the boat tour terminals outside the city center. Oh wow! Yeah, which which I understand makes sense in terms of like not wanting all of that there. But then like, how are people supposed to get back to the city center where presumably their hotels are? So there's not been a boat. lot of not by boat. Or yeah. beer, uh, beer buy. Or public transportation, because of course now you can't pay with cash on the trams anymore. So it's a, it's a, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think. Do you drive or ride a bike? Are you in the train or on the train? If you're producing text in English but aren't sure of just the right wording, M Squared can help you. M Squared is a digital publications company that can help you with all of your writing, editing, and translation needs. They have a combined 20 years experience crafting the perfect document from editing books to writing website copy. If you need help with your website text, brochure, thesis, press release and more, contact them at info at msqrd.com. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. Because we were on a little break the past two weeks and we noticed a lot of weird and bizarre things uh, happening, we decided to give you a roundup of these stories and all the ophef of the past two weeks. Paul, can yeah. we start with what is ophef? Well, ophef, it is a Dutch word and we... I think u- it's my favorite Dutch word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is my favorite Dutch word too. And we use it a lot on this podcast. We use it a lot. I yeah. use it a lot in like life. Yeah, yeah. in life, yeah. But it's best described as fuss or dust up. Or commotion. Or commotion, it? yeah. yeah. It's yeah. the phenomenon when something happens, someone says something or writes a column or the police does something or a politician has a ridiculous proposal... All of a sudden, everybody is talking about it and yeah. everybody has an opinion about it. People are debating about it. Um, and it could basically, it could be anything, but it typically lasts only 24 hours mm. and no longer. Yeah. So after 24 yeah. hours, nobody talks about it It's a great it word because it's not quite a scandal. That's like too no. strong of a term, but like it's not nothing, right? Like I don't think that there's a great, people always say, oh, there's no good translation for like gezellig or like lekker in Dutch, but that's not true. There's just a lot more words in English for that. Mm. But I can't think of a word in English for ophef that sort of conveys the same kind of... Yeah, the key thing about ophef, I think, it's got to have some kind of humorous element, doesn't yeah. it? It's got or like always, absurd so, element. Yeah, it's yeah. something absurd. It's got, it can't be so serious that you know no. people are genuinely you're hurt. Yeah, sometimes you have that, but most often, yeah. generally speaking... There's no lasting damage, I think. Yeah. No, there's no lasting point. damage. Yeah. Yeah. And that also touches upon my most favorite moment in Ophef. That's when there is Ophef about the Ophef. Yes. And people are 
you know, making a fuss about why are we talking about this? Yeah. And then the whole debate shifts to where why we are talking about yeah, it. And that's the best part of Ophef. Yeah, Twitter is basically an Ophef channel, isn't it? Yeah, so, well, yeah. the media is Ophef too, because, yeah. you know, in the past we had newspapers and we had uh, news shows which discussed the Ophef of the day. But back then you had um, a news cycle of 24 hours because the next morning you had the new paper and there was uh, you, you need to fill the, the paper with more stuff. But now with Twitter and with internet and with social media, you have this ongoing cycle of ophef yeah. sometimes you have more ophefs in one day than in one week <laughs> but often the ophefs will start some twitter and then you find the papers pick it up so they say this in the next day's newspaper and that kind of continues it for another 24 hours yes, and it's in the talk and then there's and... It's in the talk shows and then there's a debate in parliament and yeah uh, yeah yeah, and so it goes. And you have been doing an anthropological study on Opef, Paul, by tweeting out the Opef of the day every day since the beginning of the year, right? Yeah, because last year, I think it was somewhere in December, I was talking to someone and we were discussing the latest Opef, and it, it later evolved into a, a conversation about Opef, and we were thinking, what was the Opef of last week again? And we couldn't remember it. And that's also, uh, you know, a characteristic of Opef. The moment Opef is occurring, yeah. it seems like the most important thing in the world but after a day it doesn't seem to be that important anymore so i thought next year i'm just gonna keep a list of all the ophefs a day and then in the end of the year we can you know uh, go through that list and then we can all laugh about what we were seriously debating about uh, uh, in the past year we will definitely do an ophef like hour-long special at the end of the year where we go back through all the ophefs and discuss our year's best ophef we should have ophef of the month or something we should should, yeah. yeah So, Paul, what's what's been going on? There's been a lot of Opef in the last two weeks. So yes. let's, uh, let's we... start with my... I think this is my favorite Opef. The first one is the Anne Frank pages. Uh, yeah. Last yeah. week, two more pages were added to the diary of Anne Frank. And the Opef was about the fact that Anne Frank herself had personally taped off these pages while she was writing her diary with the intent that no one could ever read them. Then people felt like revealing these pages, uh, uh, which included a couple of dirty jokes, but also some very personal stuff about her developing sexuality, for example, was a breach of her privacy, especially uh, because it involves a 14-year-old girl. But that was the op about. There was a debate, should we uh, uh, publish uh, these pages as well? But, I mean, we already published a diary of her, which is also a breach of privacy. It's an extremely personal thing. why, Why would you draw the line here so that was where, what the op the debate was about yeah and there was a lot of interesting uh, yeah. conversation why was that. this your your favorite op-hef? i just think it it's a question that has no answer like i don't think that there's a clear i feel like every time i have this conversation i'm swayed by whoever i feel like donald trump right i'm just swayed by whatever <laughs> argument is in front of me because i can kind of see it from all sides right both the argument that you shouldn't reveal this stuff and the argument that you should reveal this yeah stuff. because she right. is against her will she is a historian yeah, uh, yeah. A historical person of course but that's also something that op is about there is a sense of of truth in both sides yeah. and that's yeah. that's also what Opef is about. So it's led to a lot of interesting conversations about this kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, like I say, the diary was published in a kind of very different context from what she kind of uh, imagined it would be. And, uh, yeah, that, but these kind of pages, I think, uh, intrinsically, they're not that interesting because it's just really a 14-year-old girl, you yeah. know, uh, writing about sex, which is, you know, in the context of all the sort of, you know, um, the, the whole Anne Frank story doesn't add a great deal. But yeah, the, the kind of issue of whether or not, you know, you, you disclose it, and especially the fact that it was taped up and they used some, some kind of sort of um, flash photography method, didn't they, to reveal yeah. what was in the pages they yeah. didn't actually untape them yeah. it was obviously clear that uh, you know the, 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 her original wish was not to have them published yet they were published but it's kind of the same thing as you know like Franz Kafka ordered his uh, the executive of his estate to burn all his material and yeah. not publish anything if his executor had gone with his wishes we would never have had 
that you know yeah. monument of literature. Yeah. So was it the right thing to do? You know, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. now I come to think of it, did she really mean not to publish that part, or did she just tape it off because she didn't want the other people in the Achterhuis to to read it if yeah. they mm-hmm. got their hands on their? Well, diary. and she was sort of known for going back in and editing stuff like in her journal. Yeah, as well. because so- somewhere along while she was writing her diary, she thought, well, this might be a good idea to publish it, and she started to edit her, mm. you know, the bits she already wrote. So what's next? Uh, Volkert van der Graaf. Oh yeah, this is yeah. also an interesting story. Yes, uh, Volkert van der Graaf is the man who shot and killed a Dutch politician Pim Fortuyn in 2002. And he sued the government. Uh, van der Graaf was released in 2014 after serving two-thirds of his 18-year prison sentence. But he was released under strict conditions. And one of which was a duty to report every six weeks. But van der Graaf argues that this restricts him from moving abroad to restart his life. And he wants uh, this uh, duty to be lifted. And where does he want to move to? He didn't say. Yeah. He just he wants, wants the option. Yeah, yeah. He he wants... because he, he feels it's impossible for him to have normal life in the Netherlands, yeah. which mm. makes sense because, well, Pim Fortuyn is still a beloved politician and uh, yeah, people really hate him for this. Um, so, yeah, so he just wants to move abroad. But the ophef then was that... Uh, Van der Graaf has a history of complaining about mm-hmm. the restrictions he gets. And uh, yeah, the ophef was, should he stop whining and <laughs> complaining or should he just, uh, yeah. uh, you know, get the sentence uh, he deserved? Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I kind of thought it was curious because a lot of people were, who were objecting to this were effectively saying that, you know, you don't want him to emigrate, you want him to stay in the country. Surely if he leaves the country and he never comes back again, then uh, that means a lot of the restrictions he's on right now, which have restrictions to do with, you know, that he's not allowed to approach um, Pimfortown's family, for example, you know, become redundant because he's you know, he's nowhere near them so why not just let him go all right there's a flag. sometimes you have serious ophef yeah but sometimes you don't yeah yeah um the next ophef is the amsterdam flag war no, this is a ridiculous story mm. yeah again ophef is Ophef. often very ridiculous Uh, the Denk party in Amsterdam hanged a Palestinian flag on their door in the city hall building uh, to show support uh, to the people in Gaza in uh, in Palestine the favorite day responded by hanging an Israeli flag on their door and are they lobbing Molotov cocktails at each other? Hmm. Well, that, not yet. Yeah. And um, uh, the VVD in Amsterdam, they uh, posted a photo of this, their situation on Twitter. And uh, yeah, it, it looks ridiculous. Yeah. It does look ridiculous. And oh. yeah, and it's kind of, you know, it, it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because uh, there's been a big issue, hasn't there, about the, the Israeli flag being appropriated in Amsterdam by people who are not Jewish. Yeah. as in Ajax and uh, a lot of Jews have actually s- said you need to stop doing this because it's uh, it's encouraging anti-Semitism by fans of other clubs and yeah. this seems to me to be in a similar kind yeah. of vein really I don't think it's very tasteful no I no it's distasteful I think yeah. that's the best word um does anyone care to explain what Boersucht Frau is uh, <laughs> it's it's my second or maybe third favorite Dutch reality show it's yeah. been exported and it's called The Farmer Wants a Wife yeah and, so it's, so it's yeah. Farmer Seeks yeah. Wife yeah. basically and it is a reality show in which uh, they go around to farmers male farmers who are looking for or female farmers or female farmers who yeah. are looking for the one for, we're discussing now is a female farmer yeah who are yeah. looking for uh, a partner, a partner yeah. basically yeah. Yeah. it's a popular farmers dating show Boershoek Vrouw and it started again uh, last, uh, last weekend three million people tuned in for the uh, introduction of this year's Farmers one of them was a goat farmer who was filmed delivering baby goats and uh, Ophef arose when viewers saw that the newly born goats were put in a cardboard box rather than staying with their mom. So people felt really sorry for these uh, newborns. Yeah. But uh, the farmer was uh, interviewed uh, later that week and he explained that uh, when the baby goats 
stay with their mother. They have a life expectancy of 80%. And if they put are put in a cardboard, then that is uh, increased to 95%. Yeah. So it's actually safer for the baby goats to be put in the cardboard box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it looks kind of sad. It looks kind of sad, sad but, yeah. but there is always uh, yeah, another story. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. kind of a bit of anthropomorphism going on, isn't yeah. it? Because baby children are, are distressed when they're taken away from their mothers. Therefore, that must be true for baby goats as yeah. well. Yeah. Right. And then there's, there's a lot of KLM OPEF. A lot of KLM OPEF, yeah, but yeah. the most recent one is to do with, uh, not to do with KLM directly, is it? It's to do with a headline. Yeah. Yeah, with, with a headline. Uh, Franco-Dutch airline Air France KLM uh, got a new CEO uh, last week. Or an acting CEO, isn't an it? An acting CEO, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was yeah a, a temporary CEO. Yeah. But the headline of the NOS about this news said, new CEO KLM is a woman rather than using her name. Yeah. yeah. Which is, it's, it's, she's a French woman, so her name is kind of hard, but still. It's mm. not worse than Dutch names. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was OPEF about this. Why isn't the NOS just using her name and wants to stress her, her gender? Uh, understandably so. Yeah. I get mm. that. So, speaking of French people, <laughs> this may be, this is my favorite OPEF of last this week. Is your, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, this was last this week. This is last true. week. Yeah, I yeah. thought this is your third favorite OPEF. No, but, no. Mm, this is yeah. my favorite OPEF of the week prior. Yeah. Um, a group of French visitors to the Safari Park Bakes Berge Zoo narrowly escaped death. In that zoo, you can drive around in your car. Uh, you drive in an open area where the wild animals walk freely. It's absolutely forbidden, understandably, to step out of your car. But And, and they're very clear about this. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of signs. Like, they're in multiple... But not in lang- French. No, but there's definitely signs in English. Yeah, but, but still and, and the Even French- if there weren't any signs, you kind of intuit there's not a good idea to get out of your car when there's wild so animals running around, Goddamn right? cheetah <laughs> right there, yes. Perhaps they saw some, uh, some snails... Uh, So it's understandably absolutely forbidden to step out of your car, but the French visitors didn't realize this. Uh, They parked their car, stepped out of the car and walked around, but not realizing that a group of cheetahs were approaching them. Very hungry cheetahs, I I might add. Uh, On the very very last moment, they spotted the animals. Uh, They ran uh, to their car and stepped back in just in time. But the ophef is about the people who filmed this incident. um, And people feel that they should should have uh, intervened and should have stepped out of the car <laughs> to warn them, yeah. basically, for yeah. the approaching cheetahs. Yeah, so people are outraged about people stepping out of a car in front of wild animals, and their solution to it was that other people should also have stepped out of their car. No, yeah. my... This is kind of a Trumpist uh, no, response, isn't sorry. that kind of thing? This is I, the same as these... Trump saying he would have run into a school when there was a guy running around with a, yeah. you know, with a semi-automatic And rifle. it's not that these people were, they weren't trying to help. They were waving at them, and yeah. but they didn't <laughs> feel like they didn't want to hunk because who knows what yeah. happens with, with stop the animals yeah. if they heard the, these noises. I would not have gotten out of the car to rescue these idiotic people. Sorry. No, no nobody would have done no. that. Um, this involves uh, the middle school final exams, uh, the next OPEF. Uh, there was a major dust up because just days before the final math exam, a student found out that the HEMA protractor contained major errors. You know, the thing you use to uh, measure distances and oh. to uh, measure angles. Yeah. Uh, for example, in between centimeters, there should be nine millimeter lines, but somehow in some cases there were 10 or even 11 of these lines so that meant that the protractor was basically useless useless yeah. yes yeah. so who, who could have designed a thing like this an industrial no, engineer an industrial engineer yeah. oh that's an excellent but the problem here is that HEMA is basically like the school supply yeah, store yeah, for yeah, everyone for yeah. everyone so everyone has a HEMA protractor yeah, yeah. and so, where do you find a replacement if HEMA stops selling them the internet yeah. bowl.com yeah. maybe uh, but there was a second HEMA related OPEF over uh, the HEMA has to pay a fine to Levi's for making creating jeans that look too much like iconic Levi's jeans this week also. But doesn't any jeans look like Levi jeans? I don't know. That was a bit of what the all-pef was about, <laughs> I think. 
How much was the fine? Four point something million euros. So it was a lot of money. Approximately yeah, a new Rembrandt. Of... Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Or three pairs of Levi's jeans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the next uh, Ophef. Well, it's not really Ophef, but it's a fun story. We uh, we, we, we just wanted to talk yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, we wanted to, to talk honest. about this. Yeah, it was uh, at a musical festival in Trent. Apparently, you have uh, musical festivals. It's in probably Trent. normal. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that there was any fun in Drenthe, but apparently there is. There isn't much. Um, but it wasn't really fun because a man stole a forklift truck and he started to, to, to drive into Dixies and started to destroy them. Uh, however, there was a group of soldiers present and they tried to stop him, so they ran to the truck. But this resulted in a mass fight of over 20 people. Wow, it's probably the biggest battle that's ever been held in Drenthe. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. no one ever fought no, a war. No one has ever fought a war over <laughs> yeah, Drenthe, no, no. until now. But yeah, it wasn't over Drenthe, it was over a forklift. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I mean, this could have or happened Dixie. anywhere. Yeah, or Dixie's. Yeah, m- maybe the soldiers n- really needed to go to, uh, to the toilet and uh, they couldn't, yeah. yeah. The next one is the uh, Post-NL fan. Yeah, the next one also involves vehicles, right? It so also it? involves yeah. a vehicle, that's true. Uh, there was a man on Twitter and he uh, complained to Post-NL that the delivery van in his Amsterdam street was polluting the street and uh, effectively making his one-year-old unhealthy, I guess. Um, so PostNL replied that we are working on this. They linked a photo uh, to an electrical vehicle that's uh, delivering packages. Uh, but they, they said this needs time. And we see that you live in Amsterdam. You should probably look on Funda for a nice little house on the countryside <laughs> if you care about your child's health. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, on one it's hand... It's not great PR, is it's it? It's not yeah. great PR. Yeah, no, yeah. Offering kind of unsolicited advice is a bit of a sort of a, I a mean, disease. I understand the, the guy's point in that you're living in the city center, so like there is a quality of life issue there uh, with regards to pollution, but like constantly having a large truck parked in front of your house It's that's not running. constantly. It's, it's a few times day but he lives in the streets there on both sides of the streets it's, it's fully packed with cars yeah. does he go every morning to his neighbors ring the bell and and complains about them owning a car or no or but of course they're deliveries. not but i bet you he would complain about it if they parked their car and left them the car running multiple times outside the house i mean i think it's a bit of a silly thing to complain about but not like totally absurd perhaps he should complain to his neighbors about them uh, ordering packages yeah that that could be a better thing but yeah post response did not like help anything and uh, now the latest Ophef. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to end on Ophef to end all Ophef. Yeah. That's, because it uh, involves Cherry Baudet. It involves Cherry Baudet. And, yeah. and baguettes. Yeah. Cherry Baudet wrote a new novel. It was his 10th novel already. And he was invited as a guest in a talk show host to talk about his new novel. And uh, the talk show host read aloud one of the weirdest parts of his novel. <laughs> and it involved, well, a, f- a phallic description of a baguette in yeah. Paris. Sure. So, uh, yeah, he, he read that out loud and yeah. uh, people on the internet found that very funny <laughs> and uh, ridiculed Thierry Baudet. And that's the, that's the nicest thing to ridicule Thierry Baudet. I mean, he often appears in Parliament dressed as a soldier. Then he is, you know, deliberately being a fool. But it's, it's most fun to make fun of him when he is being serious right. mm-hmm. and yeah. being a fool while he's being serious. When he's trying to play, play the intellectual dandy writer and, uh, and coming up with this tawdry description of a baguette and, yeah. and how it's kind of a job for women and yet it's still sort of very masculine and it's a very Freudian passage I think, yeah yeah it was very Freudian and the fun thing is now I come to think about this uh, Geert Wilders used to be the Ophef creator of yes. Ophef creators yeah. but in the same morning Geert Wilders uh, announced that he was going to have a Muhammad cartoon draw contest in the Tweede Kamer he announced it on Twitter and I, I saw that and I thought a couple of years ago this would have been the Ophef among Ophefs mm. we right. would have talked about this for a week yeah but instead 
nobody was talking about that. We were only talking about Cherry Boudet's baguettes. Yeah. yeah. So that's an indication that yeah. Kate Wilders is um, becoming less exactly yeah, the kind of Boudet yeah. has succeeded Wilders as the number one Ophef king of the Netherlands. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that we're talking about this with his ridiculously phallic and terrible description of baguettes, and not because he said something terrible and racist. Yeah. So I, I I can enjoy this. Maybe it's racist to French people. It could be, but I mean, you know, if they're going to get out of their cars and cheat apart, they kind of deserve what's coming to <laughs> they them. They're for it, yeah. yeah. If they're going to bake their bread in that shape, then they don't Seriously. deserve any sympathy. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, you can subscribe to our feed, give the podcast a rating, and share it. My thanks to Molly Quell and Gordon Derek. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Music